Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we have a returning guest, Bruce Fenton, who some of you certainly know from the world of UFOlogy. Um, some of you probably also remember his name from Earth Ancients, where he was the science editor and still occasionally pops up on Earth Ancients. But he was there for many years. Um, and he's been on this show. Uh, I think this is your third time here in the garden. And we're very happy to have you here. So, Bruce, how are you doing? Thanks very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to having a, an interesting chat on a topic I think most people have a bit of curiosity about. But, yeah, no, good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, we're going to talk about Antarctica today and some of the myths of Antarctica. And, and you know, we, we've tried to get into Antarctica a couple of times on the show. And then, uh, yeah, it came up in the show about Nazis and the occult a little bit. And uh, it came up, I think, in one of my international law shows where we're trying to extrapolate into space. Now, for those of you who don't know Bruce, uh, you certainly want to follow his material. Uh, and if you want to get a pretty good summation of it, if you can call two hours and 20 minutes a summation, um, the prior episode of Garden of Doom, I believe it was called 788,000 BC, Panspermia, Panspermia 788,000 BC. But, um, well, if that, if that doesn't hook you in and of itself, uh, I don't know what will. But uh, Bruce has very interesting theories, which are backed by uh, evidence and, and some interesting science on panspermia and uh, when it first started, at least in, in an intelligent design type of way, as opposed to sort of the primordial ooze or along the way in, you know, in the Earth's, you know, 
about 4 billion years ago, whenever the, you know, I think we were, Earth first had life sort of around, you know, uh, 3.8 billion years ago. I mean, when you're talking about that long ago, nobody knows anything anyway. Um, we recently got some information that the Webb telescope may find that the universe is twice as old as we thought it was, which is just brings it to uh, like 14.6 billion years to, you know, uh, 29 point whatever that turns out to be a four or two million. But yeah, again, uh, th these numbers are incomprehensible. Um, anyway, but uh, Bruce has joined us on other shows as well, and he's sort of a, a master of all things sort of paranormal and occult. And in his research, he's stumbled upon just about everything and written about lots of stuff. Um, so I've done enough talking, Bruce. Why don't, why don't you tell the folks, give them uh, your full shrift, not the short shrift I've given you, on your uh, CV. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd say that uh, being a jack of all trades, perhaps master of some, would be a kind of a, a summary. But yeah, no, I've been very interested in ancient mysteries, uh, the occult, yes, paranormal, uh, aliens, UFOs. So, I mean, all of these topics I've, I've delved into over the years. I think I began researching in the kind of the fringes of science probably about 25 to 30 years ago now. Obviously, the different degrees of seriousness over time, but um, yeah, certainly so it's a long haul of strangeness and conspiracies and, you know, all, all of that good stuff. Um, obviously, I've appeared on a couple of TV shows like Ancient Aliens. I've had a few guest appearances. So, led an expedition for giant bones in the Caucasus with Science Channel. So, that was quite an experience. And appeared in newspapers for my expeditions into the Amazon jungle to a, a megalithic site there. So, it's been a really, it's been a really wild ride. That'd be the kind of, you know, the cliff most bit. It was just a, a very weird and wonderful ride. Um, and at the, this moment, yeah, I've become very interested in the aliens topic again and UFOs. Obviously, that's become the, well, I suppose it's the topic of the day, isn't it? So It sure is. And that was our other show. Our other show was like first protocols, like first protocols according to Bruce Fenton. What 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 would the first protocols be? Because I spoke to someone else about that and they were just like, listen, doesn't matter what the first protocols is. Whoever they are, they're going to be so far advanced, that's so far beyond us that our first protocols are going to matter as much as, you know, a, a toothpick matters to an elephant. They, you know, they're just going to cast them aside. They're going to dictate the protocols. I'm like, okay, well, that's it for that conversation. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're, so we, we had a bit more fun with it, more with a, uh, you know, you know, primitive species, us meeting a more advanced species, them, but, but one that we could, you know, they knew that we were not grasshoppers before them, so to speak. Uh, to borrow from uh, the Old Testament. Anyway, so today we're going to concentrate on Antarctica, but we can certainly touch into the UAP thing because that there's there's no reason to have Bruce Fenton on the show and not talk about the UAP in air quotes disclosures and hearings and you know everything else that's going on now in the public spec uh, uh, public sphere. Try to say public center and public sphere at the same time, and I came up with Spectre, which maybe is a Freudian slip there, but, uh, you know, U.S. Congress, uh, I know that it's going on in Britain and other governments are talking now too. And I don't know, it's like, it's, it's always odd when a bunch of governments start talking at the same time, not necessarily like if it's the U.S. and Britain, because they do things in lockstep a lot, but when other governments are that, you know, like Brazil, uh, you know, not, not really an enemy of any, of either nation, but not really a friend either, you know, sort of, they do their own thing. Um, India, uh, you know, uh, you know, China, uh, all sorts of nations are, are, are doing it. And it's, 
you know, it's a little bit strange. And then, of course, you get the people say, well, see, it's a new world order and there, there is a global conspiracy. It's like, I, I, I don't know if, you know, are, are they run by the aliens? But anyway, let's start with Antarctica and we'll find our way back to UAP. So, Bruce, I asked you to, to, uh, to look into some of the myths of Antarctica, which I figured that you already had a, a pretty fair amount of knowledge so that you weren't really having to do all that much research. So where do you want to start? Yeah, I, su- I suppose you, you, in a way you have to start with the most infamous areas, which is this kind of the connection to the, the Nazis and possibly, you know, implying saucer connections there. The idea that, you know, that if we go back to, well, we know that during the, some point during the Second World War, the, the Nazis were down there. You know, they, they certainly explored and they wanted to have some level of industrial centers there and obviously, you know, secret bases. Of course, we have this whole mythology today around Nazi secret bases. For people that aren't aware of that, I'm sure a Google search will quickly make them aware of just how prolific the conspiracies are around the idea of secret Nazi bases. Now, that's not without some reality, right? They, they certainly did go down there. They did establish some sites. Now, there's a, a big question as to how extensive those settlements were, you know, what they were actually doing there. Was there really, um, you know, kind of flying saucer bases is one of the, the claims is that they, perhaps they had their, um, you know, experimental craft down there. And the reality is they did develop, you know, what looked like flying saucers. So these are certainly a, a real craft, contrary to what many may suspect, you know, these were legitimate craft that were experimental. They didn't necessarily seem to live up to the hopes and dreams of the, you know, the Nazi elite, but they could take off, you know. So they did have some stuff like that. So there's this kind of backstory that perhaps they had you know, perfected some of these and that they had some of their advanced other advanced weapons projects down there all as a kind of you know a bolt hole if things went a bit wrong and indeed there's you know again there's stories that some of the nazis perhaps fled to antarctica as the war began to you know turn the other way even perhaps you know hitler you know taking a submarine down there you know to escape justice so we have this kind of this strange backstory and then later on you know this is burgeoned into the greater mythology that maybe whilst there that the nazis may have stumbled on either a, a lost civilization that was buried under the ice you know with their digging to establish these bases or or even possibly some kind of alien installation that they broke through into in some underground tunnel systems that they found there now we go a bit more into both of those sort of those other side topics but we have that all kind of growing out of this story and then as the war comes to an end, you know, we have this Operation High Jump where uh, a large you know, US fleet is dispatched under Admiral Byrd and they they sort of chug their way down there supposedly to do a bit of uh, cold weather training type stuff, you know, to see could the US really establish a base in Antarctica, could they perhaps lay claim to an extensive chunk of the ice fields and keep in mind we know there's there's a lot of really, you know, valuable resources down in Antarctica, particularly oil, right? There's a lot of oil down there. So gaining a foothold, you know, even with all this frigid temperature, it does make sense to have some bases down there. So there's quite a lot of, um, you know, it's quite a lot of ships, a lot of men, several thousand men deployed, you know, aircraft uh, under this 
official kind of initiative to see, you know, how could they perform there? You know, would the planes perform well? Can you establish a base? You know, what what do you need to have long-term settlements in place? All of this is is the kind of the official statements on Operation High Jump. Now, in conspiracy world, that has become really a, a kind of a mission to root out the secret Nazi bases and to destroy, you know, the secret weapons that are down there. And so there's a you know, there's two kind of concurrent stories there. You know, the official version and the whispered conspiracies of, of you know, destroying secret Nazi bases hidden under the ice, potentially accessing either their advanced technologies or the technologies they've recovered, you know, from these alleged other uh, finds down there from some other civilization, whether terrestrial or extraterrestrial. Now, I think that's probably, I would say, the most famous kind of myths and conspiracies around Antarctica. I mean, would you would you agree with that? I think I think that's the ones that stands out when people think of Antarctic conspiracies. Yeah, I would put that definitely as one A, one B, B being that the a UFO crashed in there, and you know that that's that big hole that you see on some photos. You know, when there seems to be a hole in the center of uh, like a hurricane uh, cloud pattern above the uh, the ice, uh, and that there's a ship in there somewhere. Uh, whether it crashed recently uh, or whether it crashed there, you know, whatever, a million, 10 million, 100 million years ago, and it's been buried there uh, and was rediscovered. You know, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some people who can, who, you know, have some ideas to the weather patterns back then. They'll tell me that when Antarctica, Antarctica was not frozen at all and this, this, that, and the other thing. And, and uh, so when it would or couldn't have been in any event, yeah, those are definitely the 1A and, and 1B. Um, myths. The other one, I, I and it also involves Admiral Byrd, was that apparently he flew. He took. He must have taken planes with him while he was on this on this uh, expedition, and he flew into a portal. Uh, and apparently, he saw. I think he saw the Japanese zeros or or Nazi whatever they call their planes. Um, the name escapes me right now, but it's not important. And, they, and apparently also saw like a mastodon or a woolly mammoth and, and then somehow managed to turn around, um, which, I mean, all of it is sort of crazy, except that this is Admiral Byrd, who's one of the greatest explorers of the modern time and was an admiral. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't be an admiral also crazy. We've seen plenty of leaders and generals and people who made it to high places, which were a little bit crazy. Some people tell you you have to be a little bit crazy to do these things and to take these kind of decisions, but it's still really interesting. And he is someone who has, you know, there there are like islands and buildings and things named after him. So um, I don't know. You, you, do you know anything about that one? Well, I mean, I'm aware that you know there's this related claim that, that he entered into some kind of entrance into the inner earth. So there was this kind of, you know, this little gateway there into the inner earth that there, there may have been a Nazi presence that had found its way into this kind of giant opening, in one version anyways, that, so that he's gone in because the Nazis are, are inside this kind of huge cavernous area that apparently goes on to a, you know, an enormous hollow inside our planet. And in another version, it's just he kind of stumbled on that and, you know, entered into it. So either way, that somehow his mission ends up entering this kind of giant cavern and you're, you're told as well in what I understand is that some of the the landscape there they saw you know around the entrance was you know green and fertile lands right which obviously shouldn't be there you know at any of the poles um and in 
some sort of you know, linked stories. Apparently, there's you know one in the North Pole, one in the South Pole, but there's these kind of entrances that you can you know you can just find yourself stumbling into these temperate zones, you know, maybe even tropical zones, which um, shouldn't be there, of course, in the conventional model. You know, it should just right. be bitterly, bitterly cold. Um, but the, you know, you don't notice it because the curve is so huge. You know, you're going to have such a huge expanse to get to it. You don't realise you're going into this entrance way this is kind of the story so you don't suddenly come on a cave you know and, and it's like it's, it's this enormous kind of entrance into the planet and if you carry on in it turns out that you know earth is fairly hollow and that you know we're living under this misconception that there's this iron core and you know this magma but in reality that we are living in this you know that kind of empty eggshell um so that that as well is quite sort of fascinating because of course that then links to other stories like you know Shambhala and you know it, it lands hidden inside the earth full of descended masters and you know so that that's kind of kind of interesting the way there's another dovetail into a whole other subset of myths and tales right which most always come from you know from Asia from Himalayas and stuff but you know have all these stories of other lands but also there's some tales like that from you know, the, the northern wastes of, of Europe as well there's some tales of supposedly of you know strange lands that may be inside the earth so that's i think as well is, is quite interesting that somehow that became part of the law but i think over the years uh, a lot of the the kind of mythology came from the the admiral bird diaries which in my understanding have been shown to be a hoax but that seems to be i can't say that i did the personal research, but my understanding is that that's been shown to be a hoax but a lot of the really wildest stuff is based around these diaries which you know, so only really if those were legitimate would they reflect the true utterings, you know, of Byrne right. himself. Whereas conversely, you know, most of what's on the official record is, you know, the more sane sounding take of what he was doing down there. So again, you, you need that kind of that conspiracy of, you know, whether or not these other, you know, kind of documents and stuff are legitimate or not. Otherwise, there's not very much to support that he really is saying all of these wild things are kind of happening other than uh, kind of r rumors you know whispers and rumors you know alleging that somebody else who's there says he's done it or these kind of stories that you know somebody else who's in the fleet apparently saying that this happened you know of course there's four thousand odd people there so right. there's a lot of potential for people to say well you know i knew somebody that was there or my granddad was there and he said this happened right so when you've got that many people involved it's not hard for um, someone to spin you know, a conspiracy theory from someone you really can't track down or check with, you know, just a, a faceless officer on one of these ships who may or may not have existed. So I think it really lends itself to, of course, burgeoning, multi-connecting kind of um, claims around the high strangeness as one tale gets popular. Of course, other people can see the potential there, perhaps to spin a yarn of their own, right? So sure. it becomes quite a complex backstory. And that's, again, we can't say that nothing strange happened. You know, we also can't absolutely debunk that. But at the same time, we can see how some of these stories might become wilder and wilder with time and with the, the huge ability for people to simply claim that someone else there saw something as well and, and must have very little ways of fact-checking, you know, what all of these different members of the operation say happened. Yeah, well, um, sellers are known... Yeah. I'm sorry, sailors are known to tell tall tales, and I think that's one of the reasons they call them fish stories. You know, they're fishy, not just mm. they smell bad if, if, if you leave it out too long, but 
know, every every kid in grade school played operator where the teacher starts with, you know, uh, one sentence. And by the time it goes around the room, whispered from kid to kid to kid to kid. By the time you get to kid 18 or the kid 20, whoever the last kid is, it, it's an entirely different story. So there's definitely some of that. But yeah, you you were about to go somewhere. So. Well, yeah, the other thing is, well, of course, I mean, it's, um, it is an extreme environment and you could certainly imagine that some people seeing things that they were not familiar with, you know, features of the landscape and just you know, unusual sights in the gleaming snow, you know, all of these factors that mm-hmm. you can also imagine people genuinely seeing things that were strange and that they didn't know what they're seeing. Uh, you can have some optical illusions in the glare of the snow as well. So, you know, it, it does add sort of a complexity that this is not a landscape that humans are really used to. You know, right. and on top of that, as as we've seen in kind of modern images from you know, Google, there are features that look quite strange. You know, some of them possibly look like structures. You know, there's obviously assertions that there's pyramids there. There's, as you put it earlier, there's, there's images that show perhaps crashed crafts and stuff there that people allege, you know, alien crafts. So it does also leave open that possibility that, that people did see things that you know are odd to look at. And came back feeling they had seen a crashed craft, or that they did see some sort of structure from an ancient civilization. So, you know, with the view that we have, you know, with Google Maps, you know, some of it would sort of tend to support the possibility that certainly people flying over in airplanes looking at some of these features may well have said, you know, well, we think we've seen something quite, you know, unusual or spectacular here. So. Again, I'm not too quick to write that off and say that, you know, it's entirely made up because, yeah, as you say, you know, they did have planes. I mean, they had, I think it was about 30-odd craft or something. They took planes down there with them. So, you know, those would obviously have an interesting view over the continent. And I'm not sure how much of the region they explored. Obviously, it's an enormous continent, mm-hmm. twice the size of Australia. So we can assume that they didn't see all of it. But they, they may well have, you know, gone over regions that nobody had ever seen before. Right, and seeing so it does leave itself open to that. And then we have several years later, we have another operation. We have this operation, this operation Deep Freeze, where they also, you know, there's a kind of return to Antarctica. Uh, and so, again, the conspiracy alleged that you know that's almost like going back to finish off the Nazi bases <laughs> that apparently have defended themselves successfully against Admiral Byrd's fleet using their advanced technologies, you know, the, the sources and all this other stuff that they haven't been completely rooted out. And so there's this return mission years later to kind of finish them off and use, possibly use atomic weapons to finally end the, the reign of the evil Arctic Nazi forces, right? So it, it's quite, a, you know, it's an amazing story. It's um, definitely movie worthy. I think there has been at least one film in the kind of the, the lower budget range that does tackle that idea but um yeah you could you could imagine a big budget film really tackling this really well because it's it's an amazing kind of myth isn't it that you know the repeat mission you know we're coming back to get you um so and that these are real sort of events at least you know in the context of you know these are missions going down there to do something and of course all military operations have a degree of secrecy and so we don't know the ins and outs of what specifically is done whilst they're there and you know even the idea that they were going to kind of have a bridgehead and put a base there they later kind of denied i mean that was amongst the information that was initially out there was that you know they were going to kind of 
established something, but before the mission ended, they were kind of officially denying that on the international scale, saying that, no, 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 it's just to test out whether or not we could stay there. But um, it does seem as though it's more a case that they conclude that they can't really establish a long-term base at that time. So then the position changes to, we're just exploring, you know, we're just mm-hmm. seeing what's possible. It is so, interesting that, that some of the most pervasive myths are in the two places where there seems to be some international agreement and international treaties, not that everyone's a signatory to either, um, that they're only going to be used for scientific and peaceful uses only, and that is Antarctica and the moon, which the, the moon treaty was based on the Antarctica treaty. Um, and I, I think maybe ju- not just the moon, the, the entire internet, uh, international space treaty. Um, and, you know, and we cover this more on various episodes of Garden Views, especially because one of my little hobbies there is, is trying to figure out what the law of space is and will be and then use the laws of man and earth and t- try to extrapolate them, which uh, I, I, I continually have the meta question is, you know, unless everyone agrees to it, how, how do the laws of earth and man apply to once you are beyond earth? I mean, where, where, where's the, where's the jurisdiction here? I mean, it's, it's. You know, have you not just colonized all of space by your own laws there? Uh, some, you know, and colonization is, is a bad word these days. And, you know, and for, you know, and not for bad reasons, but, you know, um, it is what it is. But yeah, the, the other one with Antarctica, I mean, it's always tied into the, you know, there's the facts that there's continental drift. There's the likely facts that all the continents were connected at some point, either directly as they are now or through other continents, your, your Lemurias, your, your Atlantis, your Doggerlands, you know, probably lands that don't have names yet. Um, and then there's the Charles Hapsgood theory, basically, that every so often, uh, like the pol- polarity shift, the, the, the surface, the crust of the Earth sort of twists the inside of the earth doesn't change. It's sort of like an orange and you've cut the peels all around and they sort of move around. And that Antarctica was, you know, in completely different climates for, you know, for all we know, it could have been a billion years. And that, you know, an entire ecosystem from dinosaurs to, uh, you know, more sentient beings could have evolved there. And there might still be civilizations there or remnants of, or, you know, Marvel Comics had the Savage Land, which, you know, somewhere fed by volcanic, springs and lava flows was a land, uh, you know, perpetually almost like a rainforest or the African jungle and, you know, people and dinosaurs and animals live there and, you know, their, their version of uh, harmony or disharmony. But, uh, you know, there's always, and these things cannot be disproved because we have not mapped all of Antarctica. And even with LIDAR, which is uh, ground penetrating radar from above, it, nobody has mapped you know, all, like you said, the, the continent is about twice the size of Australia. It's enormous. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of it is covered by like 10 miles of ice, like straight up. Um, so like the, the Game of Thrones wall of ice, but like, uh, you know, 10,000 times higher. Um, and I don't know how strong ground penetrating radar is or what they call LIDAR, but I'm guessing it's not that strong. Yeah, I mean, I assume that they, in some cases, wouldn't be able to see all the way to the bottom. I mean, I know there's been mountain ranges detected under the ice and things like that, yeah. but I don't know whether you can really see, you know, all the way down to the valleys of those mountain ranges or, or you know, or, or what level of 
of certainty you have, you know, once you get to this kind of um, you know, problem like to, to deal with kind of scanning these kind of depths. I'm not sure, but you, you would expect there'd be some uncertainties below a certain depth, certainly. I mean, obviously we do some core samples, but that's very selective, you know, it can only be in a, a few parts of the continent. So we don't really know what's, you know, under the ice in most places. And then there's, there's other parts where there's, you know, small areas that are ice free as well, which are, you know, is intriguing. So not whole continent not covered in ice, which allows for ideas that perhaps in some of those regions, there's something interesting as well. So, you know, without, we say without fully mapping and exploring further, it's really hard to say, but we do have that, you know, the Mahatkin story, you know, the, the idea that planets move. If you look at the work, particularly kind of Rand and Rose Flemath, you know, he did the, uh, when the sky fell, the Atlantis blueprint and um, Atlantis under the ice books. Um, and they also, they make the case that, that there was some kind of crust displacement, um, probably around you know, the Younger Dryas times or 12,000 years ago or so, and that you know, a civilization existed on Antarctica, but Antarctica wasn't at the South Pole at that time. And so as the crust moved, it took that continent into this you know, freezing region, and very rapidly you know, the ice began to form over this you know, this culture, and that they are now buried under miles of ice. And so that's why we don't see them. And it's, it's not a totally, it's not totally out there, you know, wacky free in as much as that, you know, there is some science behind it. I saw a really good explanation on Graham Hancock's website by um, a Spanish naval officer, I think, where he explains how this can happen. You know, an expert on um, kind of the movements of sea and so in his role in the army, he's got, has some expertise in these areas. So, so he proposed that one way this might happen is that if you had a, a comet impact, and that the comet has to be about a minimum of one kilometer diameter, that if the comet comes in at just the, the right, or you could say just the wrong angle, and it impacts you know hard into a specific kind of area of the planet, that that force could be just enough, just for almost just for a moment, to kind of stop the planet or to redirect all that force. So if you imagine the planet was stopped, the amount of force you're dealing with. But just for that moment, all of that force of the turning planet is redirected. He said that could cause the axis to change just slightly. He said at first you'd have the water would start to move to a new um, to, to a new kind of a central region. And then you would have following that, you know, as, as water moves towards the new kind of equatorial region, then that will begin to deform the land, and then you start to have this this ongoing process where it just it spirals. You know, so once you've got a lot of water going to this new equator, this sort of energetic equator, that then you've got land buckling, then that starts to change, and so it more and more reinforces a new equator, and that you could potentially then have a, a movement of a few degrees where a new equator forms, and obviously that's going to be a Bulge. So you will have some of the expanding out of this area, maybe new mountain ranges, other areas that were elevation, maybe falling down, you know, crushing down as the underneath the plate moves. I mean, so this would be a kind of a horrific cataclysmic event if it did happen. And you've got the wind, you know, would be traveling at you know, thousands of miles. You'd have winds would redirect as well. You've got water redirected across land. You know, you've got these major catastrophes, huge, huge earthquakes, 
massive tidal waves and scouring winds, uh, just absolutely cataclysmic. So if something like that did happen around 12,000 years ago, it, it is conceivable that lands were moved from their normal kind of locations in terms of you know their, their temperate zones and shifted into areas that you know would, would either suddenly cause you know warming or cooling. Uh, so it's quite fascinating. And obviously there's been a, a number of researchers who kind of looked at this. I mean, obviously Graham Hancock's talked about it as well. And uh, most will refer back to, of course, Hapgood's work. We know he proposed and consulted with Einstein on this, this idea that, you know, would it be possible? And they sort of suggested it could be. I mean, some of the mechanisms you're looking at, I think now, you know, a bit discredited, but it, it was conceivable. And Einstein kind of agreed that it was conceivable that you could have something like this happen. I mean, Hapgood, I think he proposed about four of these events that, you know, one 12,000, I think one about 50,000, another sort of about 70,000, and I think another one somewhere over 100,000 years ago. That, so in times of, you know, geologically recent times, that there'd been perhaps, you know, three or four of these. And you can see he's got some extensive writings on why and, you know, where this, where this affected. So there is some science to the idea, and, I'm, you know, and I'm a bit of a, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a kind of um, enthusiast towards the possibility of this. I think that we may well have had some kind of movement of the crust at some point. So for me, that's kind of intriguing. So then you think, well, is it possible that kind of this civilization that we call Atlantis, you know, some kind of fairly advanced civilization that existed just before the kind of uh, major climatic shifts at the end of the, the last glacial period, you know, whether or not it might have been destroyed in this way during this kind of you know, really cataclysmic event, and that the reason we don't see the amount of evidence we'd expect for that kind of civilization is because it's either you know plummeted under the sea as the as the crust buckles, or is shifted into a zone where it's covered in miles of ice, you know, because those of course would give some reasoning to how a large civilization could vanish so completely that really all we see from them is stories from other cultures and a few artifacts in other areas that suggest maybe that they came from such a place, right? But a very limited amount for a so-called advanced civilization that's not that far back in prehistory, we would expect to see you know, much more clear remnants, right? Especially globally influencing civilization you know we would think we'd find more art direct artifacts and um, buildings and you know all the rest of it their mm -hmm. ships you know that we just we don't seem to see that so this is one explanation and the, the blem maps kind of they go into quite extensive detail now if you look in fairly modern times what we have found down in antarctica is some evidence that there were more temperate periods when they found trees down there they found that there's kind of forests that were frozen in the ice and that there's been investigations going on there because that was quite unexpected. And, you know, they're still kind of studying these, but it does suggest that, you know, there were periods when trees could grow there, right? And on top of that, it's quite mysterious because we know that there's large periods of time and there's no sunlight. So it's like, well, how could forests have, have grown you know, in a region where there's no sunlight for months. So so some of this had started to, you know, on the face of it, you could say, starts to support them. And then we've got 
the the maps of the ancient sea kings. We've got these like the famous um, Piri Rees map and some of the other maps that you know seem to show Antarctica before it's been officially kind of discovered, uh, and in some cases close to how it looks ice free. Right, like the coastline apparently matches, um, which is a really strange coincidence. And there's even like mountain ranges drawn in. And every, a lot of people refer to Piri Reis. And so, you know, it's just like one of these mysterious words. Well, Piri Reis was a guy's name. And in fact, he was an admiral, again, another admiral, in the Ottoman Empire's navy. Um, and I think it was in the 15th century or the 1500s. Either way, I'm in, I'm in the right 200 you know, year period. But I think it was 1561. So something like it's, you know, it's old times, but it's not ancient history where this map was drawn. Now, clearly he was most likely drawing upon older maps, but it does sort of explain how, and the time is right. You know, if you go by, you know, the Plato Solon time period, that apparently it would have been around 11,600 years ago that Atlantis was swallowed by the sea, which everyone takes as sunk into the sea, which might look that way if a, if a basically global tsunami type of tidal wave occurred. It might have appeared that way. Uh, and in fact, large parts of it probably did sink into the sea. You probably have to destroy a lot of the landmass for it to be moved because a, a, a continent and most islands aren't floating on top of the sea. They, they are the upper crust of much larger continental shelves attached to the you know, bottom of what we call the earth or the bottom of the surface of the earth. Um, so it would take an enormous force to, to break that. And so a lot probably did sink. And it also could explain how the same place in the same time look different to different cultures. So of course, the one that was, you know, maybe on what we would call the Northeast would look closer, would, would seem more like your Iberian Mediterranean cultures, where, where the one that would be on the Southeast may look closer to what, uh, say, the Dogon, or, 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 you know, tribes in Africa would have seen where on the, you know, or I, I might have my directions wrong here, but on the other side, it, it may be more what, you know, what the, the South American uh, si side of the coast would see or the, or the First Nations peoples of, of North America would have seen, you know, uh, just because if we call the continent Atlantis doesn't mean that everybody who lived on Atlantis was the same, just like how everyone on North America isn't and wasn't the same, and everyone on Europe isn't and wasn't the same. And I mean, Asia, I mean, it's it's hard to call it a continent. There's so many different cultures there that are so, so different from, from the superficial, just on how they look and are built to language and language groups. Um, so, you know, the assumption of Atlantis, it's all one type of person, you know, like magical elvish beings or, you know, or you know, or, or all look like, you know, the, the modern artwork of Jesus Christ or whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's all silly because it would have been a continent with uh, different uh, uh, temperate zones, uh, temperature zones, and uh, probably many different cultures and uh, races, just like, just like every place else. Absolutely. And, you know, and of course, if some of these events had been real, then it fits nicely with the, the conspiracy theories of, you know, maybe the Nazis boring down into some ruins of a lost civilization, you know, and discovering that there had been someone else there for them, you know, under the ice, uh, possibly with advanced technologies there, because, of course, you know, sometimes we're told this lost civilization had quite advanced technologies, you know, it wasn't just 
um, a little bit advanced that may have had you know, aircraft or may have been even space very independent. So depending on who you listen to on the Atlantis story, of course, you know, there's a full range of claims about what kind of civilization it might have been. So, you know, again, that seems to fit nicely with the version of the tale in which the Nazis you know, discover this lost civilization and they find technology there and maybe even find aircraft and, you know, but of course, then you, you have to believe that that happened to then fit the two together so of course you've got sure. two extraordinary tales both are kind of lacking evidence but two extraordinary tales that can be fused together and almost to seem to support each other oh, yeah. but then conversely there are many problems <laughs> evidential problems underlying both sets of claims i mean not least of all i mean first of all we have to say that there's been a pole shift which is still not established you know i think that it's possible it happened but then we have Atlantis, uh, a civilization that itself is not established as being real, um, and then a set of events from the Nazis that's not established. So, you know, we really were compounding the unlikeliness once we fuse all of these different stories together. Although sometimes it seems to many people that it's, it's greater support, but in many ways, actually, you're kind of weakening your argument because you've now got to defend free precarious positions you know if you take this view that the one fits the other fits the other but all of them are very difficult to defend scientifically right yeah. so i mean if we look again at even at the the way i'm saying that there's a forest down there in Antarctica, and that could that support it the problem is these forests seem to be millions of years old and so the, the currently the official line is that the last of these forests probably vanish around two and a half million years ago down there and in some views maybe long before that but you know that's just at the beginnings really of the human story so you know it, it, it doesn't fit too well with an advanced civilization you know if that's right if, if the place was completely inhospitable from you know, two million years ago it's not going to be very attractive to an, anyone to live there right so unless we take we we use Bruce Fenton's own thinking sort of against him and just say if that's the beginning of this human story, but not that human story, maybe the same panspermia took place, you know, even if, if Antarctica was let's just say it was in a temperate zone four million years before we were, you know, modern modern man, meaning take that for what you will. 300,000 years ago, 3 million years ago, I don't care, pick either one. doesn't matter. Just think of 1923 to 2023, the advances in technology. So that kind of head starts. So if there was something else or the same thing that was evolving at a similar pace a few million years ago, uh, maybe maybe the panspermia engineers came earlier, tried it once before, and, and uh, well, the, 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 the it wasn't literally it wasn't in the stars for them when a comet fell and broke up in the atmosphere. As as I think it's fairly well accepted that the, the comet did break up in the atmosphere and there were a bunch of impacts. Whether or not they were like world-ending cataclysmic, well, clearly not. The world didn't end. I mean, humans survived, a lot of animals survived, but you know, probably only because it broke up. But if if the biggest piece hit that particular place. Possibly, but uh, of course that doesn't fit because that's 12,600 years ago uh, and, and there'd be more. But maybe it's just one of those stories that was so impactful, pun intended, that it, that it lasted 
this whole time. I mean, after all, tell, I mean, we know that there are human stories that have lasted over 100,000 years. Otherwise, we'd have no stories about the Seven Sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you're quite that, you know, we, we could um, posit the possibility of like a, you know, Silurian hypothesis type scenario where there was an advanced civilization that did, you know, thrive on this planet long before Homo sapiens and that they did colonize Antarctica and that their remnants remain there. But yeah, it would discount the connection to the Younger Dryas and, you know, the Convention of Atlantis story. Um, but it, it doesn't close the door on the possibility that someone else was there before us, long before us, right. and that there is ruins there from a non-human civilization. But yeah, it would it would discount the Atlantis kind of connection. So, so that one is problematic, because if we can't show that there were trees and forests there, then it, it looks very unlikely that this was in a temperate zone just 12,000 years ago. You know, because the would be, well, why are there trees frozen from millions of years ago but why is there no trees frozen from thirteen thousand years ago right so so there's definitely a problem so without some of these dates being revised in the you know the forest they're finding you know of course if it turns out that you know they find a piece of wood you know or a tree stump should we say and they date it and they say oh you know actually some of these are a lot lot younger than we thought i mean that would be of course a game changer to the story but as it stands, it does seem to discount that this would be a, a place anyone would be going to go and live. Right? Certainly not I mean, reptilians. Reptiles do very poorly in the cold. Right, I mean, that's where you have to go back to the aliens, potentially. So, so it could be a Silurian hypothesis. It could be someone from long, long ago. Or that, yes, you, you could have these alien visitation, some sort of alien base there, you know, again, to connect with this kind of the, the mythology of Antarctica. The other story is the aliens being there in an alien base. Now, of course, that could be at any time, because we would assume that an advanced civilization from beyond the stars would have the technologies to reside basically anywhere it wants. Right. You know, you know, obviously the stories are, you know, under oceans, in mountains, maybe flying in that volcano. So we hear all these stories. So it would, it seems on the face of it that, you know, if they are here, as many of us suspect, that they seem to have technologies that would allow them to basically go anywhere and do almost anything. So a base in Antarctica by an advanced star-faring civilization could exist. You know, so that one, in some ways, although, again, there's an evidence problem under it because we're not seeing the objective direct evidence, right? But so in the myths, this idea that there's an alien base there, and I've heard certain researchers saying that, you know, special forces have gone there and gone down into chambers with symbols on giant doors and, you know, and all of this kind of um, stories from alleged insiders that there's, you know, a vast complex there with kind of technological artifacts in it. But that would, that would, if real, yeah, would, would fit better with some kind of extraterrestrial um, presence. You know, a, a technology allows them to to go under the ice and just build enormous facilities that, that are, you know, impervious to the cold. And it really doesn't matter where they build them. Uh, in that case, yes, I mean, we can't discount that. Because, again, the secrecy around the continent, the inability for the average person to access it, the controls over kind of who can be there. And, of course, if you sail there yourself hoping to find it, you're more likely to freeze to death than to, to stumble onto any interesting sites that may be there, right? You know, you kind of have to know where you're going in this vast continent. So if there is known information, it's not being shared with the general public. So there's a kind of 
a, a self-built protection around the whole story, you know, that it may be true, but how do we ever research it, you know, in a direct sense? How do we validate it? So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's like with many kind of conspiracies or, you know, myths of uh, ancient mysteries that it could be factual. You know, it could be, as you say, that there's an ancient civilization. There. It could be that there's an alien base there. It could be even that the, the part of these past military missions was to do with that, you know, but we struggle to find that objective support, right? You know, you, you basically end up in a bit of a, a take it or leave it kind of scenario where, you know, what does your gut tell you? Or do you believe the um, the insiders or the whistleblowers, you know, and the documents that are posted online? And, you know, so a lot, a lot of it comes down to that. And that's the unfortunate thing. And without, uh, I suppose, a change in the way Antarctica is um, accessible to the world and without a change perhaps in the way information is shared generally about the continent and I guess, yeah, more efforts to to map and explore it, uh, then we are a bit left in the dark as to how much truth is in all of these stories, right? Because, I mean, I don't, I don't write it off. And again, you know, it is kind of intriguing. You have this vast continent. It does seem to be a lot of secrecy in some ways, you know, about the information that comes out, about what's there. And also there is just sometimes it feels like there's a, a bit of a disinterest to properly explore and map it. You know, we do have technologies that allow us to do that more than we could, you know, more than we could in the past, certainly. Um, so I don't know, it kind of it kind of enables a lot of conspiratorial thinking, right? Because, you know, it's almost perfect for it. It's a place where we cannot really go and just check for ourselves as to are these things true? I would just love to, you know, if they were able to do it, they, so whoever they are, able to go down there and complete disclosure. And, you know, you found like basically Narnia you know, or, or the Middle Earth, you know, and every, you know, frozen there, you've got ogres and trolls and elves and dwarves and dragons and such. I mean, so much fun, but I mean, it is, I mean, it's almost like Fermi's paradox, like, you know, but the, the, the you know, it is covered mostly in miles and miles of ice. And so it's, it is hard to get to, but at some point, the, the chances of not finding anything of great interest uh, or many, many things of great interest are infinitesimal. Now, what those things are, are they pyramids? Are they interest? Are they different kinds of species of, of animals, you know, flora, fauna that we haven't seen before, other types of hominids or, or maybe non-hominid intelligent life? That would all be interesting. You know, it does pretty well in, in, in the, the frozen waters around Ar Antarctica and the Arctic Circle. Certain kinds of mammals like seals and whales and, and porpoises and dolphins. And, uh, you know, that, that, you know, not all of the star people and all the legends were insects or, or Nordics or elves or jackals. Some of them were sort of fish people, you know, the, the, the Dogon, they were sort of like a, almost like mermen, you know, almost like a described more dolphin-esque. I know people have tried to compare that to the Anunnaki and the ant people, but I don't know. I've seen both ants and dolphins and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to confuse them, and I don't think that folks that had to be much more attentive to their environment to survive would confuse them either. Um, so, but uh, so that that's a fun one that I would like to play with. That, that that you know maybe it's it's more like the 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 aquatic mammal that that's more adaptable. Um, 
you know, uh, and uh, the, the the Morsos, and I say Morso because that's Spanish for walrus, and I often call myself that because a little fat, and I never get cold. So, and my uh, my my partner in life, La Sicaria, is from Ecuador, so she speaks Spanish, obviously. So, uh, well, we'll insight into why I go that way. Anyway, um, but I think it would be really really cool, and I and I hope that one day is there. But I don't believe that there's like a, like a mega army of from NASA that's preventing people from doing this and for better or for worse, probably for better. The fact that there's Antarctic tourism now sort of belays that there is no ice wall around the world. There's, there's no, you know, black, black uh, helicopters and, you know, people in black clad balaclavas with high uh, frequency machine guns and other weapons keeping people away. I mean, you, you can go swim there in there. I I've known, uh, I've known more than one person who's done Antarctic tourism and you can leave from different parts of, I mean, you can get there from Australia, you can get them from South America, you can get them from, get there, I think from the, from Cape Town or Johannesburg. Um, so, you know, uh, our, our, our maybes and our ifs are, we need all of the dominoes to go in the right direction and, and a bunch of them are being flipped out of, out of the order, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, with this, of course, the idea there that they're kind of stopping us seeing what's there. I mean, I think in reality, I mean, a lot of the protection of the firstly, obviously, there's ecological concerns and all the rest of it, but also simply the worry that people will die if they go there. You know, that if you were to just take your boat, you know, and you and a couple of friends and sail there, you know, you could say that you know the Coast Guard will turn you back because they don't want you to find any base, but. I'm sure that they'd be saying, turn back for God's sakes, you're going to die there. Yeah. You know, where are you going? Because it's it's unlikely that you're going to end up successfully finding an alien base. It's far more likely you're going to be frozen to a popsicle somewhere lost in those ice wastes, right? So um, it's convenient, but, you know, it works for a course for the story that, you know, you're not allowed to go there because there's secrets there. But we can see a logical reason why you would stop people sailing along looking for secret bases there because it, it just looks like a disaster waiting to happen doesn't it i mean there's very few people that have the the skills and the fortitude and the know-how to cross those ice wastes right and even then many of those don't come back alive right so it, it's not for the faint heart you know so i think we have to look at it in that context you know it's easy to say it's because we're being told that, you know, we can't go there because of all this stuff or the ice wall or, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, it's an area where the average person wouldn't last five minutes, right? Um, yeah. It's the same as like the Amazon jungle. You know, no one's stopping you look for lost civilizations in the Amazon jungle. The reason most people don't do it is because they know they'll be bloody dead within a couple of days, right? Because they've no idea how to, to fare in those kinds of conditions. Yeah, It's very, very specialist skills and equipment you require to enter into um, regions like that. Yeah, it's so logistical miners. You need to be provisioned. I mean, fuel, fuel is heavy. You need to have food. A lot of food is heavy. And you need to have water that's not going to freeze. And that's not so easy to do either. All these things are heavy. So there's a reason expeditions have so many support vessels with them. Where So a few guys in a fishing trawler or, or an advanced catamaran or even an advanced yacht that's just not going. That's just not going to work. It's 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 right. not enough. They wouldn't survive. And, and how would you see anything? You know, it's it's all ice covered. So even if there is something exciting there, the chances of you happening upon it in the great gleaming white you know waste mm -hmm. seems very very unlikely. So you'd need to sort of know already where you were going. So you'd have to have some indication from maps 
that you already had found an anomaly that suggested to you that there was a city or a spaceship, you know, they'd be happy something you were targeting. You certainly wouldn't want to be wandering the wastelands in the vague hope of finding something, right? You know, that's just certain death. Um, so, I mean, that's another another problem you'd have is that, yeah, you really would have to be going to something. Because in the past, of course, people would say we're just going to the pole or something, but they had a specific destination. They were not just wandering around mapping, you know, all the features. It's vast. It's a vast concept. The chance of them stumbling on something fantastic, I, I think, is, is infinitesimal. Now, there is some, from my work, some interesting tie-ins that I, I think may, I'm not saying they necessarily switch this, but may have some links. I mean, I one of the things I've looked at is the possibility that around about 50 to 60,000 years ago, people moved along the ice from Tasmania, using this as a kind of a uh, of an entranceway into the Americas. Now, if that is the case, and there's some indications in Trail of Tierra de Fuego and in, in that region that there's overlaps in the culture and some of the law between the people that were there, the original people, most of them now have kind of died out, but the original inhabitants of that region, there's a lot of overlaps in the, in the customs, the dress and you know, other elements that suggest that they may have had a link with the indigenous people of Australasia. Now, some of the earliest people in the Americas down in Brazil have Australoid features, and we know there's genetics in some of the indigenous tribes in Brazil that go back to Papuans, right? So there's a growing there's a growing body of evidence that the first Americans came from Australia. Now that's quite well because you think, well, how would they have got there? Would they have gone up all the way through, you know, up into Eurasia, you know, through the Eurasian continent, and, stuff, and then you know, round that way, or you know, how have they got there? Because otherwise you would suggest that they've gone down and around the ice, right? Which, it's a hard thing to do, but if you've got watercraft, you can skirt along the ice using the coastal resources, right? So fishing, taking animal, you know, taking game off of the ice sheets. And as we touched on earlier, there are areas not too far in from the coast where you have ice-free areas. So, you know, if you were to have some level of awareness of the, the coastal areas and know where you could hike in and set up camps that were ice-free, you could move along the ice sheet, you know, hunting and then going back to your boats, moving further along until you do eventually reach um, Chile. And of course, we're going back to a time when these ice sheets were more extensive. So you're not having to sail. You're not really having to sail down. The ice sheet is connecting Australasia and the Americas, right? A simple so question you for actually... you, and I don't know if you know the answer to that, but the ice—if you melted it, would it be closer? To, would it be drinkable? Would it be salt water or would it be fresh water? Yeah, you'd be able to drink it. So you can drink. You can, if you've got the ability to make fires as well, then yeah, you can melt that. Um, or even if I suppose if you have you know, some idea of how to do that without fire, I mean, it's, I don't know, some way of doing that. But yes, yeah, certainly you could use the um, and melt waters or whatever that you find along the way. So it is doable. And we know, in fact, if you look at the entry into North America, we now believe that the the first, well, not necessarily the first people there, but the wave of people that we consider to be the Clovis people, uh, that they likely also came along the ice sheet, not walked, but used small watercraft, hopping along the edges of the water, you know, along these kind of the ice sheets. So this is the same model. So this is so it's not some sort of far out idea. 
this has become the consensus view is that actually it seems very likely that rather than walking along the ice, which is so perilous and so hard to do, that it makes a lot more sense that these people use watercraft because they also seem to appear on the islands, right? So they get to North America and they're also on some of the small islands along the coast and stuff, right? So they are obviously able to cross water. So how are they doing that? They, they have some boats. So if they have boats at the beginning of this journey, it's very likely they're not walking the whole way, that they are sailing and they're coming back in along the ice. They're hunting their game along the ice, uh, fishing. And when they get to the Americas, they still have these boats. They're able to colonize some of the small islands. So this does make sense that, you know, this is a way of doing it. And in fact, watercraft usage probably goes back a million years or so. So, you know, down in Australasia, down in the, um, in the islands of today, what's Indonesia, you know, we find in Flores, we've got evidence that Homo erectus reached the island around a million years ago. We've got, you know, obviously the kind of diminutive, uh, Homo floriensis around 700,000 years ago. They're probably you know, two different groups. They have to reach that by crossing deep water, right? So some kind of watercraft is implied for them to do this. So if a million years ago, there's already watercraft, there's nothing wild about the idea that 50,000 know, years ago, humans in that region are using watercraft, right? Now, if that's the reality, and some of these people may have died along there or frozen along there it may be that there's you know bodies or you know people could have stumbled on something like you know an ancient settlement frozen in the ice mm -hmm. and you know I mean, how would you inter interpret that if you're told nobody's ever lived there that would certainly look very strange if someone had stumbled on that or flown over and seen what appeared to be you know just under the ice some a frozen you know village or something so i don't think that these things necessarily are completely fanciful because we know that strange things like that do happen. Like the coincidence of a plane just out of a vast region just happens to fly over the area where there is something strange, you know, and that gives, you know, they go back to the ship and say, I'm sure I saw, you know, humans in there. I saw some sort of you know, a village or something there, you know, under the ice. I think that there's a civilization here. So, I mean, those kind of things can really happen. And if you're not sure what you're looking at, I could imagine someone interpreting that in a way where they assume that there is a, you know, a civilization under the ice, something like that. You know what I mean? But because you, what do you interpret it as? You know, I could easily see that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if in years to come we do find that there are some of these kind of frozen settlements. It just would just, you know, not too far in from the coast. You wouldn't expect that to be you know, a city in the depths of the continent, but you might find, you know, a village of people that didn't make it, you know, they were on their way along the ice and they got caught yeah. in the storm, frozen, right? So it's not super wild. Now, the other thing is, you know, with my work, as I, I talked a little bit about, is that around the time that a lot of crazy things are happening, so 780,000 years ago, that amongst those events, there's a sort of pounding of the planet by objects. And one of the objects does go into the Antarctic, right? So we have this, what seems to be an object several kilometers across is inferred. Now there's a really good article in The Guardian a few years ago where it tackles that they discovered a series of anomalies in Antarctica. And they think that a very large object several kilometers across broke up into five pieces. And that one of the largest chunks left a hole in the ice about 200 kilometers by 200 kilometers. So something absolutely massive, you know, pounding into the ice there. 
and then other pieces. Now, I have made the, um, the suggestion that you know, if I'm right about the idea of an of a extraterrestrial megastructure breaking up in orbit, which obviously there's a longer argument for, but if it is that, we do know that the debris field associated with that event, which is the Australasian tectite strewn field, that it comes to its end in Antarctica. And that's where we find what's called the um, microtectites. And that's kind of the end of the strewn field. That that just happens to be the continent where we have this large object going into the ice. And so I, I have been left wondering, you know, if this isn't the remnants of this large craft breaking up, you know, and then finally impacting the ice. Now, if that is the case, that dovetails back into where we are with this idea that the possibility of someone discovering something amazing you know in one of these anomalies under the ice um, and finding alien technology and it then being covered up and you know and then all these rumors that we have that whether the nazis or more recently that people have you know explored under the these anomaly sites and that have found something intriguing so that again is a possibility i mean it's i'm not saying it happened i just i just find it so intriguing because the dating is the same the dating for these two it's a massive strewn field you know it's 20 um, percent of the earth's surface stretching from indochina to antarctica and the dating of that event matches this huge thing impacting the ice it's the death so star it does leave me wondering it's the death star from star wars that's, that's, that's yeah it's like that i mean and if if again if this is the case i mean some of these stories we're getting now in the kind of the towards the red towards the hearings with you know David Grush and all this stuff uh, claims that we have multiple craft that have been recovered and that some of these have been found possibly in what sounds like archaeological settings. You know that these are entire craft that had no crew that were kind of you know abandoned here and that have been recovered whole. And this is the story that we're getting right now. Again, I can't say whether these are accurate but it has this funny thing of fitting very well again with this story because if someone has found remnants of a large craft down there and on its you know hangar bay they've pulled a number of intact sources you know out of the craft and then you've got these stories from you know, Grush and obviously Bob Lazar and other people saying that craft have been found in archaeological settings. Let's, let's pause for a second so just, just uh, like uh, tell the people the context of where you're getting this information and also who's Bob Lazar and who's Grush so that everybody is up to date. Sure, yeah. So Bob Lazar is probably the most famous kind of alleged whistleblower in the UFO world. You know, that he apparently, you know, his claims worked at a, a site called S4 near to Area 51. And that he, whilst there, he was assigned to uh, examining the, the power source of an extraterrestrial craft that had been recovered. And he, he had heard from his boss, allegedly, that the, at least one of the crafts had probably been found in an archaeological setting, but that there was multiple crafts. I think it was, it's a uh, nine craft, I think, in his telling of events. And then more recently, David Grush, who's you know, was a, a senior uh, official that was associated with the UAP task force. So, you know, he was part of the investigation into whether or not UFOs, UAP were you know, legitimate. U UK or US? Or other? No, so he's US. So yeah, okay. US. So he has become a whistleblower and has been telling the Congress that there is a secret program that has recovered extraterrestrial vehicles and that 
some, I think he's actually said something about 10 or 12 of them, so even more possibly than Bob Lazar has said, and that amongst these there are some that were kind of left with no crew. There's others that apparently have crashed or been taken down, and that those, in some cases, have got bodies associated with them. But the interesting thing there is that, you know, again, if this is real, and if what he's saying is accurate, some of these, the way they describe is that they've been found, like with no crew, somewhere. So that fits very well with archaeological discovery, that, you know, somewhere we've dug something up, and... Hey, presto, there's a craft there. You know, nobody on it because it's so old. You know, if they were ever on it, they've decomposed away. Um, or it was in a larger craft and they were never dispatched because that larger craft crashed into the ice and we've pulled these smaller units out from it. You know, so that, if true, fits with it. And I think we've also had um, some whistleblowers that are not necessarily named, but have been talked about by, I think, Michael Schellenbacher, the guy who wrote um, Apocalypse Never, which is a climate book. But he's also so he's been contacted by insiders and he said he's been told similar things to what David Grosh is saying, but from multiple insiders and that they've told him that there's, I think he says, 12 or 13 craft. So it's almost more, you know, more and more with every insider that's coming out. Make of what you will. But, you know, it seems like some very senior people within the U.S., you know, military system are screaming that there is recovery happening, you know, that they are finding these craft somehow and that they have been sequestered away for analysis and that they want the, the US public and the world to kind of know that, at the very least, that aliens exist, they have been here, that we have recovered evidence and that whether or not we ever see the technologies make the light of day, but at the very least that humanity should know that we're not alone. So that seems to be the direction of where they're going now that's it's such a kind of a wild story that it's definitely not you know more wild or less wild than what i'm saying about you know possible large craft that once you get to that point many other claims and stories start to look a lot less wild even this one about the nazis finding some some craft you know if you have one of these stories it turns out to be true if, if it really is the case that the U.S. has recovered alien craft, that if even one, right, is sitting in a hangar somewhere in the U.S., and that is substantiated by evidence from whistleblowers, then our whole world changes. You know, that is the biggest game changer in our lifetime. And then it makes us revisit many of these other conspiracies and myths from over the years with fresh eyes, saying, well, hang on a minute. Maybe we've been rash in uh, dismissing some of these stories because, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. Once one alien <laughs> spacecraft is validated, then you've really got to look at it all, all over again, right down to maybe, you know, Nazis finding alien technology in the ice. You know, it all suddenly takes on a view where you, you better have another quick look through all your files in case you've missed something important, right? So that's amazing. And then what? What, what do we do if we find out that there are, in fact, aliens? And, and let's take a step. The, the United States government or multiple governments knew about it and, and got technology. What, what does that change for you and me? Like, what changes? I mean, we still have to make money. We still have to, you know, pay our bills. We still have to buy food. It's like... the. You know, I, I could see where 
you know, if you're very religious in my, you know, or if you are part of an organized religion in its hierarchy, you might panic. Maybe the concept of aliens fits for all powerful God, you know, just because we interpret it to be Earth as being special. Maybe, maybe every planet has their own version of the Bible and, you know, an all powerful God certainly has the room within that definition for everything, for infinity. Um, so I would think a, a religion could easily deftly uh, absorb that, as could I think a lot of their adherents. I, I think it's more the the, the hierarchy of, of particular uh, churches, and I don't mean church as just Christian. I mean church just as a as a uh, umbrella term for any sort of organized organized religion that they might be worried about it. But you know, if our day to day lives don't change after a little bit of panic, and you know, you know. Either nothing changes or maybe we decide we should work a little bit more together if for nothing else in the worst case scenario that that we do have potential enemies from beyond. Um, You know, uh, that is the only side effect I could see. But the history of human nature tells us, you know, big deal. Even even if we think that they all are the Mongol hordes coming, we're still going to find ways to to fight amongst ourselves just just to decide who's the best able to uh, defend against these Mongol hordes, and no disrespect to the Mongol hordes. It's just they were very effective, and they were one of the uh, you know from a Western side of things, they 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 were the other uh, for a long time. Um, so I I don't even know what kind of difference it would make day to day. I mean, I know that I'd be excited. I know you'd be excited, but maybe I'd be terrified also. It's like it's the yeah, whole thing I, about the dog catching the car. You know, now what? And that's why I think in some ways, um, with many of these kinds of, I guess, you know, myths, legends, conspiracies, they, they, they are great when they are theoretical, you know, because it, does, it doesn't really cause any great change. You know, you know, they make fantastic hobbies, you know, they make people broaden their minds, you know, you wonder what's possible in the world and stuff. But yeah, to actually find, you know, even today, find Atlantis, you know, submarine, some Atlantis, you know, that would be. It's, it's something no one's really thought through properly. You know, what does, what happens then? You know, what changes? Because there's been you know, this quest to find it for God knows how long. But when things suddenly become concrete, real, you know, I think it's very different. I mean, what people would actually do may not be what they expected, or how they would feel may not be how they expected. And it may not have the impact they might have predicted, right? And I think that's the same with aliens. I think that, that most people would take it in their stride. First of all, I don't think there would be this kind of global panic, these kind of scenarios that sometimes are suggested. I think, look, if you can handle the idea that one day this body you're in is just going to collapse on the floor and you're going to get chucked in the ground, that's it. That's the biggest, you know, existential kind of shocker, you know, that you can have. So, I mean, if you can tackle the fact that, you know, we die, everyone on the planet is doomed. We're all doomed, right? Know, without any of these other things happening to us, you know, climate change, volcanoes, aliens, we are all doomed, right? So it, as long as you're tackling that, you can probably tackle most other things. Now, even if they cause you some kind of initial psychological upset, maybe some fear, but you, you know, we've managed to get through ice ages and cataclysms and stuff. So humans are pretty robust, you know, you know, because it must have been terrifying, I'm sure, when you know people lived with comic impacts or you know giant earthquakes all of these things are are massively intimidating but we do process them and we do move on and i think the same would be said with aliens i think what it would shift the most 
is the way people think about hierarchy and the way people think about the positioning of governments, officials, like I said, you know, religious hierarchies, because suddenly you've got an entity that implicitly sits above that hierarchy, right? Because if they can get here from God knows where, you know, out there in the cosmos, they can do something magical compared to what anything the government can do, right? No matter what great secret weapons we have, you know, yeah. if someone else can essentially bend time space or something like that, or, you know, in some way get a vast craft across the universe to us, we now are going to be interested in, well, what do the aliens think? You know, what does the president think or the prime minister? What do the aliens think? I mean, do they have a plan for us? Do, you know, what, what do they reckon is the best thing to do? Because they've crossed the cosmos. They must know better than our bloody politicians, you know. So they've organized this cosmic journey. I mean, so people are going to start, I think, think about hierarchy in a different way. And I think that it'd be frightening for governments because they would see there's a risk, a destabilizing risk to where they sit. And that's why I think if any reason exists to cover it up from their perspective, it's the worry that we will no longer view them in their favorite position as being the high and mighty, that we will start to say, I don't really care what country. You know, what does Zargon think? You know, <laughs> can anyone contact the, the head of this fleet? You know, so I think that and also the existential idea yeah, that we're not alone. It would maybe inspire us to change the direction that we're going as, you know, sociologically, psychologically change us and make us think of ourselves as part of a cosmic environment. And I, then we can access this cosmic environment. I honestly think that there should be like a conference where there's an entire day or half a day devoted to, you know, thinkers you know, hypothesizing on, okay, we, we've discovered that we're not alone in the universe. Then what? And all the different scenarios that would be the utopian, the doomsday, the in-between, the, the Machiavellian, you know, whatever whatever it is. Is is Zargon our new god? Was Zargon always god? Did, did did Zargon come and hasn't come back because they weren't very impressed with what they saw? I mean, what, what, what happens? Do we resort to Lord of the Flies or the French Revolution, then end up with a new Napoleon. I mean, all, all of all of these different takes, I think that would be fair. I mean, if I could arrange such a thing, I, I would love to do it, but I can't. I don't have the I don't have the ability, the time, the power, the money, any to 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 arrange it. But it might be a fun thing to try and do in Garden of Doom. Um, but uh I obviously have to give it a whole lot more thought. But one of my first thoughts is that Bruce would be on it. Um what else from the UAP or UFO disclosures uh, globally? Uh, has struck you, if anything? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's been really interesting, if you look at the last um, sort of five years, you know, as we've had this kind of shift in the media, particularly in the US media, but also in global media to some degree, you know, since the the TTSA kind of story in the New York Times and the idea of ATF, and this, so this is a so alleged secret UFO project that was kind of revealed in the New York Times back in 2017. But since then, there's been a kind of a shift in the way um, journalists report on UFOs and UAP, and obviously UAP is kind of the, the new term that's come out since then, as the story shifted to one of more seriousness, the idea that there really are things seen by pilots, you know, and people that are trusted to be, you know, professional observers, and there, there are people in the defense infrastructure who are kind of saying that they are whistleblowing, that there are objects with remarkable abilities that seem to be not, US, not China, not Russia, and that appeared to be maybe, you know, off-world technologies, you know, so that's 
started to um, move away from the days of, you know, X-Files music playing on, on every news story that mentioned UFOs with, you know, a picture of a, of a little green man in the background. So it was always the silly season stories, right? That's how it was treated. Now it's more like, you know, is there a defense issue here? You know, what is happening? Or is there budget being taken away to seek a project? So there's, there's a different view on the story. And that's what I think has changed most. The strange part of it, of course, is that although we've seen um, a huge shift in the way that the media is covering it and, it, and also in the way particularly the US public is thinking about it because they're seeing, you know, politicians talking about it seriously, they're seeing pilots talking about it seriously, and they're getting these whistleblowers, you know, but the, the interesting thing is we're not actually seeing lots of new evidence, right? So there's a, there's a curve in, in how the topic is reported on, viewed, discussed, but there's not a similar curve in accompanying evidence coming out. So it's really interesting to see that this is a kind of a paradigm shift that's mostly kind of socio-psychological, right? It's not scientific. So it's not that they've found, you know, new evidence that really supports there being aliens here. It's really the old evidence and similar claims, but from new people. Um, and but somehow breaching those old kind of media lines. And I would say that's partly because of the the caliber and the influence and the money that's involved. You know, you've got some people that, you know, like say Chris Mellon, you know, who's from the Mellon family, they're like a super wealthy family, you know, obviously very respected within the kind of US defense world and the political world. You know, obviously Lou Elizondo came out from the kind of defense infrastructure and again is, you know, was a very kind of senior, you know, you access all sorts of special access projects, you know, so again, somebody who's viewed as quite credible, um, and Tom DeLong, who started the TTSA, this kind of, you know, UFO-based company, millions of dollars behind him, access to the media, right? So when you get these kind of collaborations, and there's been many other people in, in this kind of group, but you've got a, a web of people who have money, influence, links within the White House, links within the, the Pentagon, and I think that they have managed to essentially shift the story without new evidence by understanding how you can kind of um, leverage the media through a combination of your influences and your money. And that how, you know, if you do it the right way, you don't need to actually come out with lots of new evidence. You need to change the way the system looks at that topic. And I think they've done that very well. And so to me, that's been the interesting thing about this is it wasn't that we suddenly found, you know, a crashed ship and it was on TV and like everyone started believing in aliens. That's not the way that this has gone. It's pretty much happening through very um, clever interaction with the media and with the government by people who know how to do that and have the access. And that in the past is something that we haven't seen in this topic. Usually it's disparate people, you know, a whistleblower here or claimant there you know but this is kind of a network of people right so you've got you know scientists defense people rock stars a network of people who have collaborated to really change the way society views this topic and that that is the amazing thing about what we're seeing well that's a perfect segue because if if people want to know more about this but don't want to follow it themselves they can simply follow you because you you tweet about it pretty much daily um yeah. so this is probably a good place for you bruce to tell people if you want them to follow you how to follow you if, if there's something you want to promote or you know, obviously your 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 book and and things like that so uh yeah plug away 
Sure, yeah. I mean, if people would like to check out the books, I mean, I'm, I suppose Amazon probably the easiest place for most people. You can go into bookshops. You know, they still exist. So people can go there and ask for my books. Um, there's The Forgotten Exodus, The Inter-Africa Theory of Human Evolution, which is um, not about aliens or anything. It's just about human origins. And that's got a forward from Graham Hancock, which was awesome to get. And also my book, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, which is about aliens. And that one's got a forward from Eric von Daniken, which is also really cool. So those you can go in any any bookshop, you should be able to at least order them. And of course, yeah, Amazon orders, you know, all the big stores, you know, you should be able to, to their online presence, you should be able to get them. If you'd like to sort of follow me, I mean, Twitter's where I put the most stuff. So if you go on there, you'll find me at um, Geological Seti is my handle on there. And also I have a Substack, and that's brucefenton.substack.com. I think those are probably the main places where you'll find. So obviously you can find things I've said on YouTube and various channels and stuff. If you look for it, there's um, see some articles. You know, again, if you look for my name, Google it, you'll probably find articles on you know mystery topics and whatnot. But I won't go to particular ones, but you certainly there's stuff out there on various platforms. You know that I put out there if they want to scour around for things I've said in the past. Excellent. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show again, and I can't wait to come up with our. Uh, next topic i have a feeling it won't be the big one as to the what's next panel i, I think that's uh, i think that's uh, above my pay grade in the podcast world but uh, maybe maybe uh, you know maybe a von danigan or, or a uh, graham hancock gets that together uh anyway uh i can't thank you enough for being on the show again thank you for being here and folks thank you for listening and please give us a rating give us a review and most importantly well download and subscribe very important but also uh tell a friend this show thrives on referrals. Um, where else are you going to get the Who Shot JFK one week and Bruce Fenton on uh, Antarctica and UFOs the next, and then, you know, uh, a primer in Tarot the next week. So I, I don't know, maybe there's other places, but I don't know where it is. I know that there's shows that deal with all of those things, just not one show that deals with all of those things. Uh, anyway. Thanks for listening to Garden of Doom, and you'll check us out next week.
Yeah, yeah.